I think the exact same thing. I'm like, in order for me to get through those crazy deserts, I'm going to need a sign, you know? (laughs) This is the Exploring the National Parks podcast with Dirt in My Shoes. My name is Ash, and I'm a former park ranger and the founder of Dirt in My Shoes. I think that the parks are best seen from the trail, and I'm here to make national park trip planning easy. And I'm John. I carry the kids on the trails, I tell stories, and notice all the things that Ash doesn't care about much, like rocks. Join us as we show you around America's spectacular national parks. We're sharing our favorite places, fun facts, adventures, and misadventures. And we'll even throw in a little trip planning. Let's start exploring. Today, I am definitely feeling some California dreaming vibes. I know, it's snowing, (laughs) which might not feel like a big deal by the time this episode releases but it's still october it is and it's snowing outside and uh, i am already this is bad because i'm already feeling like i need to travel somewhere warmer i know and we talked about it yesterday because we were like what are we gonna do this winter we always like to take one warm weather trip Mm -hmm. it was gonna be florida but i think we're changing our mind to california so which is fine with me. All this learning I've been doing on Joshua Tree, I'm ready to go explore it again. I'm really excited about this one because I feel like Joshua Tree is definitely one of those parks where you will appreciate it a lot more if you know more what you're looking at <laughs> versus yes. like the big vistas and like the, you know, some parks you go to and you look out and it's like, duh, this park is super cool just right. by looking at it. Yeah, this one, sometimes I feel like people need a little bit more uh, of a shine. It's so we like got to polish it up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you grab something old, you polish it up, and you show it to them. Oh, look how nice this actually is. That's sometimes the story of some national parks. And it's definitely, I think, the case with Joshua Tree National Park. If you're not a rock climber and you're just driving through on your first visit, don't know what to expect, sometimes you don't really appreciate what you're looking at. Absolutely. I think that's definitely the case here. So I'm excited to learn some things. I don't know much about Joshua Trees, to be honest. I mean, I kind of do, Mm -hmm. but I think that it's a pretty surface level knowledge. So this is going to be interesting. I'm so excited. Let's just go ahead and jump right in. Like I said, so this is the fun facts episode for Joshua Tree National Park. Besides the trees, Ash, what do you think is kind of the most recognizable geologic feature in the park the piles of rocks yes absolutely kind of describe what they look like for people who haven't been there don't know what you're describing what is a a pile of rocks (laughs) (laughs) yes you need to shine up this park a little bit so that Uh, i appreciate it listen i've never been i feel like i've never been somewhere i distinctly remember my first time in joshua tree being excited to see the joshua trees yes for sure especially in like that quantity mm-hmm. in one place. Right. But also that the rocks there are super weird and it was different than what I had seen other places. Mm-hmm. And so as you're driving through the park, especially the northern part of the park over by Hidden Valley, kind of that area, you'll see just these giant piles of rocks. But it looks like a giant... <laughs> lives in Joshua Tree mm-hmm. and just like picks up little pebbles and stacks them for fun. Right. That's what it looks like to me. Or like a stack of marbles or something like the rocks themselves are so individual. It's not just like a big thing of rocks. It's like, here's a rock, here's a rock, here's a rock. And they're all stacked up on each other in a way that makes it look intentional. Yeah. It looks deliberate. Yeah. As you're exploring Joshua Tree, you'll see all these piles of rocks that look like they were put there by somebody. On purpose. On purpose. Like, it's it's crazy. Yeah. So, coming from Utah, I'm from Utah, I came into Joshua Tree with some false premises, I think, for my first visit. And I, recently, I've been really enjoying the Jesse Stone movies on Amazon Prime. And they're kind of based, Tom Selleck is the main actor. And John he's kind loves of, Tom Selleck. Oh my gosh, Tom Selleck <laughs> is the best. He is awesome. But I love watching those movies. He's a police chief and there's all these mysteries. It's, it's a really interesting thing. But one of my favorite things 
that he says, he says, if you're not getting the answers that you want, check your premises. And so I remember my first visit, I was like, oh, these are interesting. I've never seen sandstone making piles of rock like that. That was really interesting because in Utah, this is kind of the rules of how Utah works. Up north, you have the gray granite in all the big mountains and down south, you have all the colorful sandstone. If that it, makes weird shapes. Exactly. Yeah. And so if we're it's, used to seeing weird shapes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's not out of character for Utah at all. No, so. <laughs> definitely not. And so that was my premise. I was like, okay, this is the background that I brought into my first visit to Joshua Tree. I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. So this is all sandstone because it's kind of a yellowish, orangish rock in Joshua Tree. When I got there, I was like, I feel like I've never seen it making piles of boulders like this. And then I saw some interpretive panel and it was telling me, no, this is all granite. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was granite because it looks granite when you get up close. It's yeah. speckled. Yeah, exactly. But by my whole worldview was thrown upside down. All these rules and, and preconceived notions that I brought into Joshua Tree, I was like, oh my goodness. So it, I should have known this from countertops. Granite can be all different kinds of yeah. colors. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not, it's not just gray speckled countertop granite that you see all throughout the Sierras and stuff. And just know you're actually not looking at a lot of the same rocks that you might see in some of the other places around the Southwest. This is a unique place. And these unique rock piles come from a unique place as well compared to a lot of other southern warm weather national parks. It's a little bit different. So check your assumptions here. But this kind of brings us into fun fact number one, to challenge some of your ideas of what this rock really is and where it came from. Fun fact number one is that the granite in Yosemite National Park and the rock piles in Joshua Tree National Park were formed by the same geological forces about 100 million years ago. Interesting. That right? is interesting. Hmm. Grab your goatee. I know. Let bit. me think about it. I don't have a goatee. <laughs> That's a very good thing. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. So in order to understand this, we have to take ourselves back about 300 million years ago, all the way back to our favorite supercontinent, which of course is Ash. I was going to try to say the one that was in the Smokies episode. <laughs> I can't remember what it's called, though. Right. It. Go with the one. Ash. All right. It's the one I know. Pangea. 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 Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. We did talk about supercontinents in the Great Smoky Mountains episode. In case you haven't heard that episode, what blew our mind a little bit about that is that there were supercontinents before Pangea. I mean, it seems kind of obvious now, like... I dug in a little bit. I, I nerded out on this a little bit. And I was like, well, yeah, I can see how there would be like something before right. Pangea. Yes. But I'd never thought about it before. And I'd never learned that in school or anything. So anyway, no, just mind blown a little bit there. But Pangea, let's talk about Pangea. Well, well let's talk about that for just a second because there's some things that kind of go along with it. But there's actually fact that there was stuff before Pangea. It reminds me of one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek, okay? Now, I'm not talking about TNG, which okay. is the next, the next gener generation. Okay, good. For all you muggles out there, TNG is the next generation. <laughs> I'm not a muggle. I actually love Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's after Next Generation, Ash? What is your favorite sub-series or break-off series for Listen, Star Trek? I, don't, I never dug into the break-off series. I love The Next Generation. It's so good. Riker. Is the best Commander He's Riker the best. so cool? Yeah. But if I was to choose a spirit alien, it would be Worf. Worf was always my spirit alien. Nice. Anyways. If that's even a thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So back to the episode. It's not Next Generation. It was Deep Space Nine. I loved Deep Space Nine. But there's this episode. It's really interesting. One of the cool characters with, I think it was Commander Cisco at this time, he was with. Kai Opaka, and she was the Bajoran like spiritual leader at the time. And as happens pretty often in Star Trek, you get stranded on a weird planet, right? On this weird planet, there were two groups of people and there were two warring factions. But just over and over again, what would happen is they would fight, literally kill 
everybody, everybody would die. And then somehow the planet would bring you back to life. And then they would wake up and then just do it all over again. So just for millennia, these guys were just getting up, attacking each other. They'd fall down. And then it was just over and over a cycle that was going on here. And it kind of reminds me of the tectonic plates that are on the planet. They head towards each other. They crash into each other. After crashing, they kind of drift apart and then they get their energy back and then they do it over and over and over again. And this time, Joshua Tree, there's some serious implications with all of this tectonic plate action that's going on here. And so, but this time we don't have to go too far back to like multiple supercontinents back. We can talk about Pangea, but have you ever thought about the ocean that existed at the time of Pangea, Ash? No, never. Literally never. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting. Like we think of Pangea, but I mean, the entire rest of the planet was an ocean at that time. Yeah. Which is crazy. That makes sense. (laughs) It's massive. And we don't even know what the name of it is. It's not the Atlantic. It's not the Pacific. Someone should name it. it, There is a name for it. Oh, there is. (laughs) Yes. I was like, that's weird that there's not a name. Yeah. The name of the ocean was the Panthalassa Ocean. Okay. Okay. So we've never heard of it before. You'll never hear of it again. But the Panthalassa Ocean existed. It was the entire rest of the planet, basically. And so as Pangea broke apart, we all can kind of imagine it in our mind. There's all of these tectonic plates. But at the time of Pangea, there was actually an extra tectonic plate. And it was off the coast of North America. And it was in between North America and the Pacific plate. And as Pangea broke apart, North America and the Pacific plate started to head towards each other. There was some serious things that started to happen because what do you think happens, Ash, when two tectonic plates with a tectonic plate in the middle start heading towards each other? I would imagine that the tectonic plate in the middle would just probably be completely decimated or broken apart. Mass hysteria. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mass hysteria. Mass hysteria. Oh, yeah. So it's just lots of crazy stuff started to happen. And there's a lot of different things that probably could have happened. But what did happen, I think, is really kind of crazy. And so as the Pacific Plate and North America started moving towards each other, and this was about 300 million years ago, just so you're aware. As the Pacific Plate started pushing into this extra tectonic plate, instead of the tectonic plate breaking or just getting smushed or something like that, what actually happened is it pushed this tectonic plate into North America. And then instead of North America, just like going up and over the top of it, this tectonic plate like took a nosedive and just went straight towards the middle of the earth. And so it's kind of crazy. Have you ever put a sleeping bag away, like in a stuff sack? Oh, so many times. So many times. (laughs) (laughs) Is it a gentle process? No. No. No, you're just pushing everything in there. It's like punching. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like you've got your arch enemy's face inside this bag and you're just like punching the sleeping bag. I will say I like trying to get a sleeping bag into a stuff sack more than I do folding it up nicely and like trying to, I don't know, put it away. Oh, I when I was a little kid, we had like those fabric ones uh-huh. that were like comforters, and you had to like fold it up and roll it and stuff. I hate rolling things. I would much <laughs> rather punch things into a bag. <laughs> it's a much more satisfying it process. Is. <laughs> it is. Yes, and so that action of just like stuffing or like punching the sleeping bag into the stuff sack is the action that North America took towards this extra tectonic plate, basically. It just punched it down. It just punched it down into the Earth's mantle. And so the Pacific plate keeps drifting towards North America. North America is like just doing a number on this extra tectonic plate, punching it down. And then over like 300 million years, the tectonic plates finally move all the way together. And this extra plate, if you're wondering what the name of it was, it was the Farallon tectonic plate. And it basically got 
totally just manhandled by these two tectonic plates to the point where now currently it's actually been split into two and there's two really teeny tiny pieces of it one towards like the pacific northwest and one down towards mexico but in between all of that tectonic plate that used to be so huge as part of the panthalassa ocean there's like barely anything left all of it has been basically shoved into the center of the earth which is Mm. super cool You can imagine, like we mentioned, mass hysteria going on because there's got to be some major things happening as a result of this, at least on the surface. And so what happened was as all of this stuff got shoved down underneath North America, mountains and volcanoes everywhere are being created along the edge of North America. Nowadays, we call it the Ring of Fire, but that's really just the Ring of Fire is mainly all along the perimeter of the Pacific plate. Mm-hmm. This time, for all of this action, there was just a lot of stuff just along the edge of North America, wherever all of these tectonic plates were just smashing into each other. And so there were tons of volcanoes, mountains being created everywhere. And in order to kind of understand how, bringing us back to what the fun fact was, how Yosemite's granite and Joshua Tree's granite were created by the same forces, we have to think of my favorite food. Ash, what are my two favorite foods? Lasagna and applesauce. Yes. <laughs> I love that my wife knows those two right off the bat. And is, are they ranked or are they tied? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, listen, you eat applesauce a lot more than you eat lasagna. Yes. But I think that lasagna is probably your favorite. Oof. They're tied. No. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a close tie. (laughs) Yes, it's like Michael Phelps and that one other swimmer that you always kind of had a crush on. I like Ryan Lochte. Yes. But he was never close to tying Michael (laughs) Phelps that I can recall. (laughs) Yeah, it was closer than people realize. Oh, I know. He's still an amazing swimmer, but like, can you almost tie Michael Phelps? No, I don't think so. Would you go on a date with the greatest swimmer of all time? Or would you go on a date with the second place, slightly more attractive swimmer? Probably Ryan Lochte. (laughs) I've always loved him. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> I knew it. Anyways, that was a fun little tangent. So, yeah, so we're going to talk about lasagna for a second because the best part of my day, honestly, is when Ash puts on those oven mitts, opens up the oven, pulls out the lasagna. She gets a spatula or a knife, or whatever. She cooked it. She can use whatever utensil she wants to cut <laughs> it up. But right before she serves it, she has to cut it into pieces. Now, as you shove your spatula or whatever it is down through the top, kind of the 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 crispy crust, Mm -hmm. as you shove whatever it is through, you realize you release a lot of energy when you do that. And you can see it in like the steam will start to shoot up from where the spatula just like pushed things down, right? Mm -hmm. It opens up all and it releases a lot of the heat that's down there in the middle of the lasagna. And... That's exactly what happened when the Farallon plate got shoved down under North America. And so all of this heat from the center of the earth is getting released as volcanoes and magma and lava being spewed out onto the surface. But a lot of the heat didn't actually ever make it to the surface. It's that heat that got re- that got released, but it all it did was it melted and it created all these massive magma plumes is kind of what they're called these big magma chambers and those magma chambers slowly rose to the surface almost like giant conquering balloons melting as they go and so you have these tons of these magma balloons being released and rising as the heat from this farallon plate is plunging towards the center of the earth and over millions and millions of years these magma chambers slowly rose A lot of them never made it to the surface. About 100 million years ago, lots and lots of that cooled into what makes the granite in Yosemite and all through the Sierras and the granite that makes up all of the rock piles in Joshua Tree National Park. So then how do they look so different? I mean, obviously, Joshua Tree is not like big granite mountains. Right. But how are those rocks 
how do they look so perfectly placed in Joshua Tree? Great question, Ash. But I might have to leave you on a cliffhanger for just a minute. Hold on to that question because I promise that we'll get there. All right. Do you think you can be patient? No, I would (laughs) like to know now since we just talked about rocks for 20 minutes. (laughs) Cool rocks. Really (laughs) cool rocks. And we got to talk about Star Trek. Don't forget about that. And Ryan Lochte. And Ryan Lochte. Overall, a very good conversation. (laughs) Exactly. So hold on to that thought for a second because this is going to lead us into fun fact number two. Before we kind of really get to what the fun fact number two is, we need to talk about some distances here for a second. Joshua Tree is about 130 miles east of Los Angeles. The Channel Islands are about 80 miles west of Los Angeles out in the ocean. Fun fact number two is that Joshua Tree National Park and Channel Islands National Park are part of the same mountain range called the Transverse Ranges. No, no, <laughs> I object to that. I've ah, been to both of those places. Sustained. <laughs> <laughs> you can't object. This is my courtroom. Oh, man. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is crazy. It's like the, the an area, and that's just like the very edges of both of those places. The area itself is way bigger than that. So we're talking about an area spread apart by more than 200 miles. And ocean. And ocean. Exactly. Plus LA traffic. Yeah, which will take hours (laughs) to get through. Oh my gosh. Recently, I found one of my new favorite SNL skits is called The Californians. Uh It's so funny. funny. It's got Kristen Wiig. It's got Bill Hader. And basically, they all these people have bleach blonde hair. It's like a soap opera. But what throughout the whole thing, they always just describe how they get there to avoid traffic. Like there's like one of the guy, oh Fred Armisen, he shows up and then he sees Kristen Wig here with Bill Bill Hader's like, Devin, what are you doing here? And she's like, There's nothing going on, Stuart. And it's just so, how did you get here so fast? You're supposed to be at work. And he's like, Well, I took the five and I got off it. <laughs> you know, it's just, oh my gosh, it just makes oh me laugh. Oh my gosh, that's funny because my grandma has told us so many times, like. If you fly into L.A., I'm not coming to pick you up. (laughs) You're you're on your own to get to my house because she will not drive L.A. traffic. Yeah. And it's all times of day. Oh, it's awful. (laughs) Oh, I did drive to the airport once last year when I went to go visit her. And it was like four in the morning and there was not traffic. I was so amazed. I was like, oh, my gosh, that was the fastest I've ever gotten to L.A. Oh, my gosh. The fastest I've ever gotten to that airport. Yeah. Oh, so I will do that from forevermore. It will be 4 a.m. drive times to the airport. Your your grandma and Kristen Wiig in that skit would have a lot in common. <laughs> like her like her my favorite line that she always says is, Stuart, at this time of day, it's gonna be jammed. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. We I are said, not, go we're home, not Devin. Get back on the San Vicente, take up to the 10, switch to the 405 North, and let it dump you out in Mulholland where you belong. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so good. But yes, that's honestly, that's probably the biggest deterrent or the biggest reason why the Channel Islands and Joshua Tree can't be a part of the same thing. Yeah. Obviously. in between. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so we got to figure out how the Channel Islands and Joshua Tree are in the same mountain range. So, we know where the granite came from and the rock piles came from. It came from magma being released and all that jazz that we just talked about. Well, at this point, we have to take a step back and realize that we are talking about all of this in geologic time. And I just explained things that happened over hundreds of millions of years at an excruciatingly slow pace. The Pacific Plate does move a little bit faster than the North American Plate but most of the movement is happening along a fault line called the San Andreas Fault. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've heard of that. Almost everybody's probably heard of that. I mean, that's the one that all those big earthquakes come from. Yeah, exactly. And most people have heard of it because of those big earthquakes. Yeah. But the average movement along this fault line is about two inches per year. Now, that's incredibly slow, but it's a powerful one. It's a really slow but a powerful force. 
How powerful, you might ask? How about 16 feet? How about 200 miles? Or 300 miles? I know that's kind of really 300 miles of power? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you didn't answer the question. I know. It reminds me of the, if you've ever heard of the song Wonder Boy by Tenacious D. Oh, well, of course I've heard it because John has been teaching it to our children. (laughs) So our children have been singing it. Wonder Boy. (laughs) It's Jack Black, for those of you that don't know. Jack Black and Kyle Glass, or as I like to call them, Young Nasty Man and Wonder Boy. (laughs) Young Nasty Man is the arch nemesis and rival of Wonder Boy. It's a pretty funny song. Oh, I will give you that. He, it's can, awesome. he can be very hilarious. Oh, so. but there's a part of the song where he's describing the powers of uh, Young Nasty Man. And he says, What powers, you ask? I don't know. How about the power of flight? Does that do anything for you? Or how about the power to kill a yak from 200 miles away? With mind bullets. <laughs> Yes, I'm so glad you said that. That's telekinesis, Kyle. How about the power <laughs> to, to move, move you? you. <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm going to change this to relate to us now. How powerful, you might ask? How about the power to move volcanic rock 200 miles away from Lancaster towards Monterey? We're talking about the San Andreas Fault, right? Yes, the okay, San Andreas Fault. I got fa- distracted. <laughs> Yes, I got we got a little off task there. That do anything for you? How about the power to move granite 300 miles from south of Bakersfield to north of San Francisco? That's crazy, right? How about the power to move a fence 16 feet? Okay, all of this stuff happened as a result of movement along the Pacific Plate against the North American Plate along this San Andreas Fault. So there's this trail in Point Reyes National Seashore where you can actually see that the earthquake in 1906 in San Francisco, mm-hmm. it moved a fence. So there was a fence line along the San Andreas Fault and the fence line kind of, it went across the fault. And when the earthquake happened, the earthquake only lasted about 45 seconds to a minute, but that earthquake broke the fence in half And the whole earth moved 16 feet. And so suddenly you have this fence that half of it is in its its first location. And the rest of the fence, along with a huge portion of earth, was moved 16 feet in less than one minute. Which is crazy. That is crazy. That's (laughs) that's pretty scary. Yeah. And so if you do the math a little bit and you realize, okay, there's two inches. It moves about two inches every year. but sometimes that it it doesn't actually move that two inches. Sometimes it goes years without actually moving. And so if you do the math, it had been like a hundred years of pent up energy to make 16 feet all at once happen. That's a once in a 100 year earthquake. And so it's just kind of crazy. So there's tons, tons of power that's going on right here. The San Andreas Fault, it's basically in a straight line from Redwood National Park, a little bit out into the ocean. And it's basically a straight line all the way from up there down towards LA. It'll hit, it goes from the ocean, it makes landfall around San Francisco, and then it kind of parallels the coast all the way down towards LA. And that's where it takes a really big turn. And a a literal turn, because the San Andreas Fault, then once it kind of hits around LA, it turns inland pretty dramatically heading out towards Joshua Tree, towards Palm Springs, and then further inland and south down to Mexico. And so we have all of this action, all of this crazy pressure, tectonic plates diving towards the middle of the earth, tectonic plates rubbing up against each other, having massive earthquakes, all this stuff is happening all along this one fault line. But the epicenter of the action is here along this curve. This curve is where it all started the most intense action about 30 million years ago when the Pacific Plate first crashed into North America. And that area, the tip of the spear, basically, of the Pacific Plate that crashed into North America happened right around LA. And it is still the front line of all of this action. Think back to Lord of the Rings, obviously Ash's favorite movie. Obviously. (laughs) 
yes. I'm thinking of maybe one of the best scenes in the whole franchise. The scene where this is the return of the king, the third movie, and the armies of Mordor have just been doing some serious damage to Minas Tirith. The lower levels of the city are burning. And then all of a sudden you hear, and who just arrived, Ash? Gandalf. <laughs> no. Oh, no. I don't know. Oh. It's not that part when he comes. Nope. It's, oh. it's Theoden with all the armies of Rohan. Listen, there are a lot of battles in this movie. <laughs> so I'm sorry that I have no idea what Minas Tirith is or whatever. Oh, my God. Uh, it's You are a muggle. You are a muggle. <laughs> you, you had some street cred at the beginning with your oh next God. generations. As if I would memorize all of the battles in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I know there are people out there that do that because you are one of those people. But for us mere normal people, <laughs> we don't memorize those. <laughs> okay. So Minas Tirith is burning. Theoden, all of his armies from Rohan just arrive. And Theoden says, okay. Eomer, you go down the left flank. Gambling, you follow me down the center. And Grimbold, you're off to the right. And then his awesome speech. Arise, arise, riders of Rohan. Spears shall be shaken. Shields shall be splintered. And then he goes on, ride, ride now with me. And then the whole army just cheers. Death, <laughs> basically. And then all of a sudden, fourth, Erlingus, And the whole army on horseback charges at the lines of Mordor. And as you watch them charge, you see a V start to start at the center of the line of all of the riders. And it's the fastest and the most powerful part of the whole army. And they just dive right into the lines of the armies of Mordor. And the V never falters. And it keeps pressing forward and breaking through the lines of orcs, crushing their enemies and changing the entire landscape of the battlefield. Okay, so bringing us back to Joshua Tree. The main identifying feature of the transverse mountain ranges that this whole fun fact is about is that they are turned east-west, while all of the other mountain ranges in California basically go north-south in a line with the coast. And so this area around LA, this area from Joshua Tree to the Channel Islands, is the battle at Minas Tirith. This area from the ocean all the way into Joshua Tree and the Pacific Plate is the army of Rohan charging into North America. And it's charging with so much force, it is literally twisting and turning this entire landscape from a north-south face, basically, to an east-west face. Even the islands all the way out in the ocean, 80 miles west of Los Angeles, and the mountains all the way 130 miles inland from LA, they're all being twisted and turned and uplifted and changed from their natural direction to this new east-west direction. And so that is how all of these places in here are part of the same mountain range. And it's all happening along this San Andreas fault line area. Just this entire area is in complete and utter turmoil from underneath the earth where an entire tectonic plate has been destroyed and these other two tectonic plates are smashing and twisting and turning and this entire battle is still going on today. There's this really cool spot. You've heard of it. We've been there and anybody that visits Joshua Tree National Park can also go there. It's called Keys View. Yeah, you know what I was talking about. When you're at Keys View, you're basically at this spot in the little San Bernardino Mountains where you can get up on there and you can see in the valley below the San Andreas Fault. Mm -hmm. What is super cool is that from where you're standing, as you look across the valley and you see the mountains on the other side, you are literally looking at a different tectonic plate from the one you are standing on. As you head towards LA, if you're on the freeway, you'll pass between two really tall mountains. On one side, you'll have San Jacinto, and on the other side, you'll have San Gorgiano. And they're both on different tectonic plates as well. It's a really interesting area because there's a whole lot going on, tectonically speaking. We've talked about how we have all this granite, 
And now we have all of this tectonic action just twisting, it's churning the entire area. And the question that you wanted to know is how do they look so different? And a lot of it, I think, probably is because there's so much churning going on. But that's going to lead us right into fun fact number three. So, so far, the groundwork has literally been laid for what we currently see in Joshua Tree National Park. The rocks have been prepared, the mountains uplifted, twisted, and the whole landscape is kind of a mess. But there's one major difference between the ancient landscape and the current landscape that we have to cover in order to get to the present, the current chapter of the book of Joshua Tree, basically. And this is it. Fun fact number three is that Joshua Tree National Park is the meeting place and boundary line of two totally different desert ecosystems, the Mojave and the Colorado deserts. Joshua Tree is, it's called a rain shadow desert, basically. As coastal storms move in from the west, they collide with Mount San Jacinto and Mount San Gorgiano. These are the two of the, of the mountains that you see on the, on the freeways. But basically, the storms, they move up these super tall mountains. And as they move up in elevation to try to cross these mountains, they drop all of their water. And then the storms, the clouds, they, they cross over. And by the time they get to Joshua Tree, they've basically dumped everything. And so there's nothing else for them to drop. Well, that's, that's what's crazy about that area. Like the Palm Springs area, those mountains are huge. Yeah. And they get snow. And then you get into Palm Springs and it's hotter than Hades, <laughs> you know, and super dry. Oh, yeah. But the mountains themselves actually are quite like there's lots of plants on them. And so like they get a lot of water. Yeah. There those could, big mountains out there, there not can, the mountains in Joshua Tree. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. There can easily be a difference between so like Mount San Jacinto and Palm Springs, easily a difference in temperature of greater than 20 degrees. Yeah. So that that's really easy. But one of the biggest things that kind of change as the air loses all of its moisture is that without the added moisture, at least 90% of the sun's rays reach the Earth's surface here at Joshua Tree. To kind of put that in comparison with some other places with some more humid air, in a lot of places with more humidity only receive like 40% of the sun's total rays. And so the hot, dry air causes all of the available water to evaporate quickly. And when temperatures are extremely hot, rain can evaporate before it even reaches the earth. And the conditions producing high daytime temperatures reverse when there's not that humidity in the evening. And so you'll have crazy temperature swings mm. in this desert. Yeah. But then we're kind of thinking to ourselves, okay, got it. How is this going to affect the granite? How does this affect rock? I can take my pot off the stove and put it right on the granite and it's just fine. Mm -hmm. How does this even change the rock or the, the geology of the area at all? So... These deserts have major implications because this area wasn't always a desert. This area used to have rivers and lakes, and it used to have all this stuff. But as the end of the Ice Ages happened, this area went through a drastic change where suddenly it went from a humid environment to an arid environment. It lost all of its humidity. It lost almost all of its water. And then because that changed... When you lose water, you lose plants. When you lose plants, you lose roots. When you lose roots, the roots no longer hold on to the dirt. And you can kind of see this in places like Death Valley and in Joshua Tree. But when it does actually rain and there's no roots holding on to the dirt, erosion goes crazy. Suddenly, a little bit of rain can cause a massive flash flood. And that flash flood has the power to literally rip apart the landscape. Mm -hmm. It will tear away all of the loose sediments and it will wash it out to sea. And so that's basically what's been happening at Joshua Tree for thousands, if not millions of years. And so the granite came from almost the same place, but with this arid environment tearing apart all of the sediments underground you have all of these granite sediments all of these granite slabs and then when the water comes in with no roots to inhibit it the water literally just like cleans out all the crevices and the water gets into the crevices and then when the cold temperatures come at night and if it freezes 
it breaks apart those crevices even bigger and bigger. And so it breaks down the granite even faster. And so then the water comes, it cleans out the new cracks, the water gets in the cracks, it makes the cracks even wider. And so it takes a solid granite slab and it breaks it down into all of these miniature pieces. And as the sediment gets washed away from underneath these granite boulders that are now being created, suddenly you take a giant slab, you break it into segmented boulders, you clean out all the extra sediment, and then what are you left with? You're left with a pile, a pile of granite of rocks. <laughs> yeah, giant granite pebbles that have look intentionally placed all over the park, but it's all just an act of erosion because the entire landscape went from moisture-loving rivers, lakes, to super arid. These two deserts dried out the whole landscape and then all of a sudden some rain does come and it cleans the whole place out. Hmm. That's how the arches and arches are formed too. From the water that seeps into the rock and gets in those cracks and then when it gets cold at night and it freezes, it expands and it breaks things apart and makes arches. So. Exactly. But it's a different kind of rock so it erodes differently. But that's really... Really cool, actually. It's a totally different process. It's a similar process, but totally different result. Yeah. Because it's a different kind of stone. Granite is much stronger. I mean, it's a very strong rock. And so to have it erode like that, I mean, that's that's the water working for a very long time to get that granite to look like pebbles. Yeah. Giant pebbles. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's so interesting. And it's not like... I mean, there's wildfires in Yosemite all the time. And so it can be pretty dry there too, but it gets a lot more moisture, enough moisture to maintain a lot of the the plant life that is there. Well, yeah, I mean, there's tons of plants. There's tons of water in Yosemite. Right, exactly. And it's a higher elevation. Yeah. And I mean, Yosemite was kind of carved out by all these glaciers. But as the Joshua Tree area, there would have been thousands more feet of sediment on top of what we see there today, had it not changed to such an arid environment, supercharged the erosion because it did that. So we need to talk about the meeting of two deserts then. I don't know if that's another fun fact you have, but that's a big deal in Joshua Tree. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so those two deserts, are a really important part. But those two deserts, one is called the Mojave Desert and the other is the Colorado Desert. And the Colorado Desert is kind of just the Western offshoot of the Sonoran Desert. And the kind of the magic number within the park that you need to remember is 3,000 feet. There's a little bit of wiggle in there, but generally speaking, 3,000 feet above sea level is the dividing line between the two ecosystems. The Colorado Desert is below 3,000 feet. And That's the, mo- the hotter, less lush, <laughs> if you can say lush in, the, in this area. But it, yeah. that's the hotter part that doesn't have as many plants. Exactly. And the Mojave Desert is above 3,000 feet. And that's the part of the park that has all the Joshua trees. Yes. So oh. you can see the line of demarcation <laughs> right there between those two deserts because when you hit the Colorado Desert in like the southern part of Joshua Tree... There's no Joshua trees anymore. No, it's crazy because if you're going north, suddenly you'll find yourself in Joshua trees. And if you're going south, you'll wonder where the heck the Joshua trees went. It's kind of crazy. And it just all of a sudden happens. And And it's because you're looking at two different deserts. You're going through two different deserts. And the conditions, you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of when we were talking about Yellowstone and the Yellowstone fun facts. And we were talking about those bacterial mats and the different colors Uh that are in the bacterial mats. And it's like even just a change of like a millimeter Uh of elevation changes how hot or cool that water is and what bacteria can live there. And it changes the color of the mat in that area, right? Right. And you're not going to feel like you're changing a ton of elevation as you go between the Mojave Desert and the Colorado Desert in Joshua Tree National Park. You're just driving the park road. Right. It's not going to be like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden we're plummeting down into the Colorado, <laughs> you know, like it's so minute it's very as you're subtle. driving. Yeah. That all of a sudden, like you said, all of a sudden you look up and you're just like, 
are we still in the park? <laughs> because all the Joshua trees are gone and, and, and the landscape is different. But it is, it's like that, just a slightly lower level. That's all it took. Just a little bit drop of elevation. And all of a sudden the Joshua trees can't grow. It's exactly right. And the Joshua trees require a little bit more water. They require a little bit cooler temperatures compared to the Colorado desert. And there's two big tells to decide whether or not you're in which desert. If you see Joshua trees, you're in the Mojave. And if you see Ocotillos, they look kind of like an octopus that's been turned upside down with all the tentacles going up. Those are the Colorado or the Sonoran Desert. And so you can kind of know which, if you don't see Joshua trees, oh, I'm going to see Ocotillos. If you see Ocotillos, you're not going to see Joshua trees. And it's really interesting. And these two deserts, it's not like the, the plant life of the deserts had an impact on the rocks themselves, but it's all a part of each other. It's, that didn't We're make any sense. We're all connected. Yeah. <laughs> it's all connected. Everything's it's all, connected. It's all connected. Okay. I'm ready to talk about some Joshua trees. Me too. So that I want to learn to, more about the Joshua trees. That takes us to fun fact number four. Do you now, like how it's an episode about Joshua tree fun facts and you had to get all the way to number four <laughs> to learn about Joshua trees? <laughs> uh, I just thought this place was so interesting. It, it, it's just so cool. <laughs> Okay, so if you've never seen a Joshua tree before, imagine the bark of a palm tree and then you've got like a like yuccas as the leaves basically is kind of what it looks like, but the branches go in almost seemingly random directions. Mm-hmm. And so you can have a Joshua tree can have zero branches or it can have a ton of branches that all go in tons of different directions. It's a really unique plant. I mean, for a long time they called it the yucca tree and and things like that. But these trees are so unique in the landscape. They're only here in North America, in the Mojave deserts of North America. And they kind of have a Dr. Seuss feel to them. They're so special. They're one of four national parks that protect plants. I mean, you've got Joshua Tree, Saguaro, Sequoia, and Redwoods. And these are special enough to merit basically a park to protect them by itself. And so it's super cool. And this brings me to fun fact number four. There is no accurate way to determine the age of a Joshua tree. We can only guess. Because mm, they don't have rings. Exactly. Are they, Now my question, are they actually considered trees? I mean, we call them Joshua trees, but are they, are they trees? They're a member of the agave family. And so I don't know. I mean... They create wood and they have a trunk. But an agave is not. Agaves are like those floor <laughs> spiky plants in the desert. Yeah. Interesting. So Yeah, I'm not exactly it sure. Probably, I mean, it probably still is considered a tree because it looks like a tree. It's bigger and stuff, but it's like a desert tree. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not a traditional tree. It's definitely not a traditional tree. And so I think because we can't tell how old one is the only way that we can tell how old they are is by guesstimating based on how tall it is but even that can be completely inaccurate because a joshua tree can grow half an inch a year or up to like three inches a year and so our estimates can be completely off three inches a year is that like the max Uh uh-huh exactly oh my gosh yeah so they're extremely slow growing the park service thinks that the average age for these trees is probably about 150 years But if you drive through the park, I mean, especially here in Joshua Tree, the epicenter of all Joshua Treedom, it's incredible. You will see giant, absolutely massive Joshua trees with an incredible amount of branches going in all different directions. No Joshua tree ever looks identical to another. They are completely unique creatures. And it's just such an interesting plant. It is the giant of the Mojave. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think it's such a spectacular thing to view. And they're so different. Like you said, they don't have tree rings. They do produce fruit. And I think one thing that really is interesting to me is that for the longest time, Joshua trees relied on their favorite animal to spread their seeds, the giant ground sloth. And so, yeah, for reals, for reals. I'm not, I can't prove this or anything, but I think they owe 
their wide expanse, wherever they are, to the giant ground sloth, because the ground sloth would eat the fruit of the Joshua tree, and then it would spread the seeds around in its dung. Uh But since those are gone, I mean, there's not anything that could replace the giant ground sloth in terms Uh of its size and probably its range. And so we've got all these smaller creatures probably spreading the seeds. But I don't know. I just think it's so cool to think this is an ancient plant. Mm -hmm. This is a plant from almost a whole other world because its symbiotic relationship was with the giant ground sloth. That's crazy. Yeah. There was a year that we went there and I'm trying to remember what month of the year it was. But we were there and we saw like the flowers Mm -hmm. on the Joshua trees. I'd never seen that before. Yeah. I want to say it was like April. I think so. Maybe somewhere in there. Yeah. That was the sight to see, like, because there were wildflowers everywhere, too. Yeah. I remember that. There were flowers on the Joshua trees. There are these big, beautiful white flowers yeah. on the Joshua trees. But then there were just wildflowers everywhere around the Joshua trees, too. Like, it was amazing. That's the most alive I've ever seen those plants. Right. Uh, I wish I could remember what month that was, but I do think it was in the spring. I think so, too. But it must have just received some moisture because everything was in bloom. Yeah, it was crazy. It was so beautiful. But those flowers are really cool. But I didn't know there was fruit. That's awesome. Yeah. And the giant sloth. They almost look like cucumber. Okay. And so, but up in these trees. But it's interesting. The reason that they have to have a little bit higher elevation, a little bit cooler temperatures is because unless the tree experiences a hard freeze, it's not going to fruit and it's not going to branch. And so that's why you see, you'll see some Joshua trees probably in the lower elevations where it's warmer that don't have any branches. They just look like straight up and down, almost like Mm Q-tip yuccas is what they look like. But what happens is the process is they experience a hard freeze. The freeze actually damages the growth portion of the branch And when it gets damaged, it actually stimulates flowering. And then after the flowering and the blooming, then it will diverge into different branches. But without the hard freeze, it will never bloom and it will never branch. Which is really Because I have seen them, especially if you're driving from, this is where I'm thinking, through the canyon between St. George and Mesquite. Mm -hmm. So St. George, Utah, down by Zion. If you're going into Nevada towards Las Vegas, you'll drive through this canyon and you can see Joshua trees there, what looks like Joshua trees at least. Yeah. But none of them have branches. Nothing has branches. I know. It's I don't so know if that's the same, but I remember driving through there and being like, I wonder why these ones are not. Yeah. It could totally be else. because maybe the climate is just slightly warm enough that it doesn't get that many freezes. Or it could be a totally different plant. It could be a, a giant agave plant. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. Or, a, the, or a yucca, pre yeah. yucca or something <laughs> yeah. along those lines. I could be totally wrong, but that is really cool that it needs that hard freeze to be able to fruit. Yeah. It's so interesting. If you've ever played the game Mexican Train and you know how later on, like in the game, all the dominoes are crossing over each other and running into each other and going all crazy different directions. That is literally like what the Joshua tree branches look like. And I don't know if it has to do with the way that the plant froze and was damaged, but they just go, after it does bloom and branch, there is no predictable way. Yeah, It's always unique and it's always different. Expect the unexpected. There is nothing like standing underneath one of those giant Joshua trees and just marveling. Yeah. At how something like that could grow in the desert with so little water. And it's just, it is so cool. That's what makes the park for me is just appreciating the trees that Mm -hmm. are protected here. Right. Exactly. Now, one question that I think a lot of people ask is why is it called the Joshua tree? Oh. Have you ever mm -hmm. thought about that? No, I think I've heard why. Are we talking about fun fact number five now? Yeah, we're going to lead us into the fun fact number five, which is always the human history. But the Joshua tree, I mean, for a long time, this plant didn't have an official name. Yeah, (laughs) it was really interesting. Like people called it all kinds of different things. People called it like a yucca tree. Some people called it Spanish bayonet. The yucca palm was another name that a lot of people called it. But I think the actual name of the Joshua tree, it's kind of a consensus has developed that it would basically came from 
a lot of the Mormon pioneers. Yeah, that's what I was thinking because they named it after the Bible. <laughs> right. Which, which is so the Bible. Right. Which is interesting. And this is where the consensus kind of breaks apart a little bit because the descriptions are all different and there's no actual like biblical support necessarily. There's no one <laughs> scripture that you can point to that's like, oh, that's why they call it the Joshua tree. And so there's a few different popular suggestions. Some people say it's when Joshua raised up his arms to the sky in prayer. Some other ones are, no, it's when Joshua uplifted trumpets for the collapsing of the walls around Jericho. And some people are like, no, it's when Joshua welcomed them with upturned arms or when Joshua guided them to the promised land. I actually went through the book of Joshua and I was like, where, where is this? And I, <laughs> there, there's no specific one scripture where it's like the arms of Joshua, you know, nobody being talks to the about sky. Joshua's arms. <laughs> I was like, come thing. on, Google, don't fail me now. <laughs> Joshua, book of Joshua, Bible, you know, it just, anyways, Google didn't know what I was talking about. It, the, the only instance of like arms being raised is like Moses. When Joshua right. was in a battle and they had to hold Moses' arms up and then they would win when his arms were up. Now, so this is where so it I... it should be called the Moses tree. <laughs> pretty much should be called the <laughs> Moses tree. Oh, man. This is where I actually think it probably does come from. Is it's, it's more of a you see what you want to see situation. Because the story of the Mormon pioneers, there were a few different groups of them. In 1847, there was a group called the Mormon Battalion. They made their way to San Diego. In 1851, Brigham Young sent a bunch of pioneers to colonize San Bernardino. And both of these groups had to kind of go through the Mojave deserts, and they saw Joshua trees on the way. In 1857, Brigham Young asked a lot of the pioneers to come back to Utah. Now, this is where I think it's a you see what you want to see type of situation, because I'm imagining the first two groups, if you're the, the army battalion, you're probably thinking Joshua Tree, Battle of Jericho, the arms are up, we're going to destroy our enemies. If you're one of the pioneer groups going out to settle or you're coming back, you're probably thinking a little bit more along the lines of Joshua leading you to the promised land. <laughs> kind of a thing out and, of the deserts of california <laughs> <laughs> please lord oh my gosh let it not be this place oh my gosh i think the exact <laughs> same thing i'm like in order for me to get through those crazy deserts i'm gonna need a sign you know <laughs> <laughs> and so i think these joshua trees in a lot of ways were the sign that they were you know they saw what they needed to help them get through <laughs> And those, to get through the terrible desert. Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh there my was gosh. there was no Vegas as a watering hole, you know, at that time. And so it's kind of interesting. But yeah, so but this area, I mean, we had groups of Mormon pioneers. We had, I mean, native peoples had been here for 5,000 years starting with like with the the Pinto culture. And up until more modern times, there were several Native American tribes now there's 15 Native American tribes that we associate with this as kind of a, a homeland for a lot of these Native peoples. And, and they were amazing to be able to live in this area. Yes. And find food and find water. Exactly. Well, that's that, incredible. That's, that takes me straight to fun fact number five is that these Native peoples used more than 121 plant species. Are so, there even that many? <laughs> a little bit cleaner. Fun fact number five is that 121 plant species are now identified as having been used for food, medicine, or materials for making things like clothing Tree and National stuff like Park, that. Or exactly. that area. Yeah. That surprises me because off the top of my head, I'm thinking, okay, there's like, I can think of maybe like 10 different plants. <laughs> It seems like the landscape just looks like it's the same plants over and over. Like, these are the choice ones that have adapted enough to grow here. Oh, yeah. Well, it's so interesting. On the park and on the Joshua Tree National Park website, there's a page where it's like, is it a desert garden or is it desert desolate, basically? Mm -hmm. You know, and depending on your culture, where you came from, how you view the land, you see it through a completely different lens. The native peoples saw this as a desert garden that provided for everything that they needed. And most of the people that probably went through here from 
a more of a, a European or a, an American settler oh, type of perspective. Oh, if you're coming from the East Coast of the U.S. and you come out here, you'll just be like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this place is so brown. <laughs> yes, there is nothing here that is worth staying for. You know what I was thinking, though? There are oasis areas in Joshua Tree. Right. Several. There's one, like the 29 Palms, kind of where the visitor center is right there. There's also one at the south part down by I-10, the Cottonwood. There's an oasis right down there where you can hike to. Right. And so that probably, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, you know what? Somewhere like that, though, would introduce a whole bunch of new species of plant. Right. That you could use to eat or build or, you know, you get much bigger trees in that area, like real trees. Right. You get a lot of ferns. Stuff like that. And so I'm sure that also introduces a good diversity to yes. that otherwise desolate looking landscape. So the, the stats on that, there are five oases in the park with okay. springs like that. And these are palm oases. Mm -hmm. And there's only 158 of those total in North America. And five of them are here in Joshua Tree. Okay. And when a lot of these settlers actually came through... They said that that is where they saw a lot of the native peoples mostly making their home. And, that's where and, I'd set up shop yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like a hands down because that's where the water is. Why would you set up where there wasn't any water coming through? Yeah, exactly. No, it's so interesting. And so these people, they had, th this was home to a lot of people. They had their systems for growing their crops. They had their systems for harvesting and gathering, and they made an entire living just on what Joshua Tree provided, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting because then when a lot of the settlers came in, a lot of the settlers ended up settling pretty close to a lot of these oases and making their ranching or their mining efforts or their homesteading. They took advantage of a lot of these oases. And as a result of that, it ended up driving a lot of the native peoples out. Right. And so uh, by tale as old as time. here. Yes, exactly. And so by the late 1800s, I mean, almost all of the native peoples had moved on because the water sources were being used. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the water is what's going to limit how many people can be in a certain area. Exactly. For sure. But as you go through Joshua Tree, I mean, that's what you'll see signs everywhere of those later settlers who displaced all the natives because there's abandoned mines yes. everywhere. You can hike to a few of them, but there's tons of like abandoned mine areas. And then you've got Keys Ranch, which is really cool, actually, that people lived in there and you can tour their homestead and, and look at the ranch and stuff, which is neat. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean... Now that I think about it and after hearing what you've said, it's like, yeah, there really were people who lived here. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot. And as the Native Americans left the area, there was a lot of ranching. There was a lot of mining. Homesteading was in the area. And there's actually 300 different mines that were in Joshua Tree, but none was more profitable than the Lost Horse Mine. Mm -hmm. And that one, in today's money, it pulled out about $5 million. Mm. And so that one was what so were they mining? You know? gold. Oh, it really was gold. It was okay. gold. Interesting. It was a. It has a really interesting history because there was a lot of Wild West stuff that kind of happened in this area. The Hidden Valley area, it's named that because there was some cattle rustling going on. Yeah. And they would hide a lot of the cattle that they had stolen in that area. I could imagine that it would be quite yeah. the Wild West in that area. No, it was the, it was the McHaney brothers. The McHaney brothers, they had a gang. And there were also some property line disputes. Bill Keyes, he was the man that owned with his wife, Frances, they owned Keyes Ranch. He actually went to jail for shooting his neighbor and killing his neighbor over a property line dispute. Nice. <laughs> a few, yeah. he did go to jail, but he ended up getting pardoned by the governor. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so uh. I don't, there was a lot of stuff. You had cattle rustlers, the lost horse mine, John Lang, I think was what his name was. He took on a few partners to actually keep the gang from basically jumping his claim and stealing all their gold. He took on some partners for security reasons. But then he actually basically was skimming gold and his partner told him, listen, you're stealing gold from our mine. You can either go to jail or sell me your portion of the mine. Oh, and sheesh. so there was a, 
all of the things that you can imagine in the West, going from cattle wrestlers to shootouts to skeevy dealings, you and know. Gangs. Yes, yeah. exactly. All of that happened here in Joshua Tree National Park. And so it was really interesting. It's got a really colorful history. But eventually, like all of the national parks, eventually people come to realize, oh my gosh, this is a beautiful place. We do actually need to try to protect this. And the main voice for that was Minerva Hoyt. Mm -hmm. And we've hiked on her trail. There's a whole trail named after her. She was really cool. She was an East Coaster, grew up in Mississippi, moved here with her husband in the Joshua Tree area. But basically, the multi-use of Joshua Tree People were using the Joshua trees for wood that they were burning all these Joshua trees. But because they grow so slow, I mean, these Joshua trees were just disappearing from the landscape. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people around Los Angeles, they would come here and they would actually dig up plants and take them and plant them back in their own yard for decorations. And so Minerva realized, okay, people are recognizing the beauty, but they're stealing the beauty. Mm -hmm. And so she actually took a lot of these desert plants and showcased them back east in places like Boston and some of the other eastern cities to show people, listen, these plants are actually really cool, but they're disappearing from the landscape because we're not protecting them properly. Thanks to her voice back east, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he actually made it into a national monument, Joshua Tree National Monument. And it was actually administered by Yosemite for a while. They were in charge of it Mm. until 1940. But then in 1994, it finally made its way onto national park status. It's a newer one. It is. I mean, that wasn't that. That was like 30 years ago. But (laughs) Just because we were alive when it happened (laughs) doesn't mean that it's new. I was alive when that one was designated. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But no, it's got a really interesting human history that goes way back. It has the Wild West, it has the conservation movement, but it also has, even though a lot of people driving through don't see it, it's been a desert garden providing for people's needs for generations and generations, millennia of people. And so it's a cool place. Oh my gosh, I learned so much about Joshua Tree. Oh yeah, you went super nerdy with this one, even more than I thought you would. Oh my gosh, uh, this one's a little longer than some of the other ones that we've done. But I just thought, oh my gosh, there's so much action. There's so much action going on. And you did a good job because now I do want to go back. We're talking, we're like, are we going to go to California this winter again? And John's like, yeah, we should go to Joshua Tree and Death Valley. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we were just there last year. Like (laughs) we go there so much. And I was like, we don't need to go to Joshua Tree again. But now I want to go to Joshua Tree again. Yes. And I want to go look at the rocks better. And I want to, I want to look at the, the fault line and how it does its weird curve right there and stuff. So good job, John. You convinced <laughs> me to go back again <laughs> another uh, year. Thanks, babe. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but hopefully that helps you also appreciate Joshua Tree a little bit more if you've already been there. And if you're planning on going sometime soon or or sometime in the future then that should help really enhance your experience in this park because at first glance sometimes it doesn't look like much but the beauty is in the details here thanks for exploring the national parks with us please share like and subscribe and if you need any help planning your own trip click on over to dirtinmyshoes.com see you next week same time same place And don't forget to get some dirt in your shoes.